it's okay to reach out to people and tell them what's going on. And also that despite everything that has happened, you're gonna achieve way more than you ever thought you were going to. Hey everyone, welcome back to Oh My Curry Goodness. My name is Hamza Islam. And on this podcast, I talk to Gen Zers from different fields about their story and really the things that have shaped them into who they are today. And one of the things I really want to do when I talk to each guest is to get the most honest, authentic, and vulnerable self. Because when it comes to inspiring people, you can't really understand, you can't feel inspired unless you know the full picture, the full story. You can't just understand the good things and all the accolades and the awards that they have been recognized for, for the work they do, but also the obstacles and the challenges they had to overcome. Because regardless of what challenges people go through, just the fact that you're going through those really difficult experiences are what make us human beings. And that's what makes storytelling really interesting is not only focusing on the great things that happen, but the obstacles that they encounter and how they overcome them. And no matter how many times you fall, it's always important to get back up and to continue to do what you think is the right thing to do. And so I hope that you continue to listen to the uh, stories of Gen Zers from different fields about what they had to do to get to where they are today. Now, my guest this week is Kaylin Ahn, who is a sexual assault survivor who uses her platform to advocate for victims of sexual assault. After her sexual assault case was not prosecuted, she testified in front of the Illinois House and Senate and passed House Bill 5441 to amend the definition of consent. With her advocacy work, she has been named one of GLAD's 20 under 20 LGBTQ changemakers. She also serves on the Illinois Council on Women's, Women and Girls after being appointed by the governor of Illinois, where she advises the governor and the General Assembly on policy issues impacting women and girls in the state. I'm really looking forward to getting to know more on on a personal level and so nevertheless kaylin on thank you so much for joining oh my curry goodness thank you so much for inviting me to speak here of course and i'm really i'm really glad to have met you it's interesting because i think just a week ago we spoke and so i when i was thinking about some of the things we were talking about and just getting to know you informally i was a bit hesitant because it's like how do you talk about I mean, storytelling is a really powerful tool, but especially when it comes to really personal uh, journeys, it's it depending on what that story what what their story is, it's really difficult. But I want to start off in a more lighter tone, if you will, because although you're an advocate for uh, victims who have experienced sexual assault, and also I forgot to mention that you also fight for people uh, in college who may or not be getting the same treatment or who may not be getting treatment in from in the respective institutions, you are also big on poetry. And I've interviewed a couple of people in the past, and they talked a little bit about their passion for poetry. So I want to ask you, talk about your love for poetry and where it started, where it all began, and how it has played an impact in your life. Because I can imagine, even though maybe, and I don't know, only you know this better than yourself, um, people don't know you as a poet, but nevertheless, I still sometimes feel like interests and hobbies that we pick up can still play a big part in our life. Yeah, definitely. Um, I started poetry in speech team in high school. So I used to do original oratory, which is just like informative, persuasive speech. Um, and then my speech coach was like, you sound like 
you would be good for poetry. And he just gave me a poetry book, um, gave me a program and he was like, go run with it. And then I realized I was much better at poetry than original oratory. Um, and then I just kept on working at it. And I mean, I always loved like watching button poetry. I loved um, reading um, poetry from picking up books from the library. But, you know, I realized like, I used to be really shy. And even now I'm still very soft-spoken. Um, I'm in social settings, I am not the person who's like, networking and like really confident. Um, but poetry was my way of trying to find my voice. And I started making poetry programs about things that affected me. So in high school, I made a poetry program about being Asian American um, and the fetishization of Asian women. And then senior year, I started talking about teen dating violence. And then now, Poetry is my way of processing a lot of the things that have happened to me and being able to rewrite the tragedies that I've experienced. So it's not just like what I've been through, but also the way I tell it. And in that way, it's like reclaiming your ability to speak about it, especially when for so long, like people, either ignore your voice or don't believe you. And in these systems of, you know, the legal system, the Title IX system, a lot of times, you know, we don't get to hear what the survivor needs and wants, but through poetry, it's, it's like the only space where I can call it my own. For sure. I, I remembered, so I'm not a poet by any stretch of the imagination, but I remembered seeing maybe it was sixth grade seventh grade when i first heard about poetry and people's and just like i guess like the i guess how they are trying to like what what they're trying to say to the to the audience if that makes sense and so i used to think poetry was just words and now it almost feels like there's always like there's like a deeper meaning behind it so it's not as straightforward or black and white as it seems and so i want to ask you is there a line of poetry or i guess like a specific poet that you feel like has made an impact in in you and i'm sure you've you've i mean obviously for your love for poetry you've seen many things or you you've you've admired many poets i'm sure there's many lines of poetry that have meant to you but is there one that really sticks out that you feel like it it almost feels like it means more than others if that makes sense like a poet that i really like yeah, like a poet or I guess like a line of poetry. Like, for example, I know like the most common thing I hear is like to be or not to be, which I know doesn't make, I don't understand that. But like, you get what I mean? It's like, there's like, yeah. there's like a, almost like a line of poetry that kind of really means a lot to you. I can't think of one. Well, okay. Um, it's not a line, but I listened to Olivia Gatwood. She's on Button Poetry. And she has one poem that I listen to over and over and over again. It's called Alternate Universe in which I am unfazed by the men who do not love me. Um, and in the end, it's kind of like, you know, how she, like in this alternate universe walks through life where she just doesn't care about whether 
men find her attractive or whether you know men are like want to date her or anything it's just like completely separate and and it's like I, there's one line where it's like um you know the hours and hours of waiting for him to kiss me here they are just hours here their bike ride across long island in june here their novel read in one sitting here i hand an hour to my friend sitting outside of the bar another one to on my best friend's porch i send my mother two in the mail i do not slice the tires i do not burn the photos i do not beg i do not ask for forgiveness the man tells me he does not love me and he does not love me the man tells me who he is and i listen and my favorite one is i have so much beautiful time and i think having experienced what i went through um it's been my way of just like i don't know like i just love the poem of just like reclaiming your life and like stop Buying for the approval of others. Um, yeah, it's trying something I'm trying to adopt in my everyday life, but it's still hard. For sure. I, I love everything you said. And it's it's important to recognize like what I don't want to say success, but it's like how do you define who you are and what makes you happy as opposed to what others what makes others happy. And I know I made it sound like it's an easy, like black and white, but I mean, I'm, it's it's much easier said than done. So I kind of apologize for making it sound like it's an easy thing. Um, no, on me. But I, when I, as I got to talk to you, you some of the things you talked experienced, such as sexual assault growing up, and it was one of those things where it's like, how do you, how do you know if speaking out is the right thing, and. It's, it's it's for advocacy work i mean in general trying to talk about standing up for what's right is difficult but then oftentimes when it comes to sexual assault sometimes you get you get criticisms like oh you're faking it uh you're causing too much too much attention um and then for some people not realizing that if you do report you might people might think that you're the, you're the real enemy as opposed to the person that's actually suffering and so Oftentimes doing the right thing is, again, another situation where it's, it's much easier said than done. But for you, when you were able to experience, and I think this was, I think, freshman year in your high school, freshman year in college, when you experienced it, how did you know if you were doing the right thing by deciding to speak up about it? Because it is such a difficult thing. And I mean, I don't know if you ever had any concerns at the time when you're speaking out, but you know you're doing the right thing. but sometimes you don't know if you're doing the right thing because you don't know if you're gonna get support so how did you know if you were doing the right thing at the time i think it's a it's a hard question and i still struggle with knowing if my advocacy is truly making a change and for the longest time after the bill signing i spoke at a bill signing where governor pritzker signed it into law I still struggled with, I guess, uh, what it, imposter syndrome of just like, I didn't do anything special. Like this didn't really make an impact and this isn't really helping people. It's just, you know, almost like a performance of advocacy. But I think back to 
when, I mean, July, it happened July 16th, 2021. And I think back to July 17th, the day after, and just how devastated and confused I was. And I think about, you know, when I got the police from, I, I finally made a report three months after it happened. I got a call from the police sergeant um, after I told them that I wanted to press charges a week after I made the report. And he was saying, you know, looking at your case, there's no way the prosecutor will ever pick this up. Um, and we're not gonna let you press charges against him. And I remember he was explaining to me, well, there was one case we actually had a few weeks ago where a woman was, you know, dating her boyfriend. She consented to sex in the beginning, and then she said no, and he kept going. But that doesn't count as rape because she said yes in the beginning. And it's so completely opposite from the reality of sexual violence, you know, like in the way that trauma works. And, you know, he told me to try to not let it happen again and move on. When I asked him if there was anything else I could do, you know, if I could get other avenues of, of justice. Um, and I realized that, you know, after what happened to me, I didn't get a say. I didn't get a say, you know, when the assault was happening, I didn't get a say in whether like how my case went through the legal system and it's almost like a second assault and it strips you of your own voice your own power your own agency your own consent and it was because of that powerlessness that I felt within the legal system that I started to be so outspoken because you know I didn't have these avenues of justice the woman that they refused to prosecute her case. Um, she didn't have other avenues of justice. So I thought, how can I get justice for myself? And then I tried everything. And advocacy was my way of, of trying to get justice for not only myself, but for all the survivors that have been through this and weren't believed. And I still struggle with whether the changes that I'm trying to make are going to change things, but I keep on thinking and reading and pushing through. And I mean, I think I'm so young and I don't have to have the answers to everything yet, but I'm still like, I still want to make those changes. I find that it's story. I mean, like I said, in storytelling is a really powerful tool, but it's, it's topics like these that really, it's like, it's almost like gut wrenching in a, in a sense, because it's, you have to think about putting yourself in other people's shoes and how they're feeling. And you, you brought it up. I think when you said the police said, Oh, it's you just move on. Don't do it again. And it's like, what is that supposed to mean? How do you move on? How do you make sure you don't, because there's so many things you can control and can't control. And it's like, I wish there were more people that were able to 
see it from from you like let's say your lens for example and i've talked about in previous episodes how everyone's perspectives is different so like how i see things will be different from how you see things and similar to your the experience that you experienced with sexual assault it's like just because you don't you've never experienced it yourself it doesn't mean it's something you just kind of move to the side because it's a real experience that's affecting real people and i want to i mean kind of touching on this a little bit more um it was funny so one of my favorite podcasters is jay shetty and he got to interview president joe biden and he asked him he asked president joe biden about which what part he listens to the most whether that be his mind his heart or his gut and so for you and whether you can apply it to yourself or maybe just advice for other people who are going through a difficult time and not knowing if they're doing the right thing which part do you feel like you listen to the most do you feel like you listen to your mind the most your gut or your heart yeah i think i think abuse because i'm also a survivor of domestic violence um i fled my home in 2021 and northwestern i'm officially a homeless unaccompanied youth um, uh, which means I am completely financially stable. Um, I mean, financially independent, and I don't have a stable form of housing other than the sublets or apartments or dorms that I get access to. Um, and I think in situations of abuse, um, there are a lot of dynamics of power and control, and a lot of abusers will tell you. Um, degrade you through insults, through uh, verbal abuse, through physical violence, um, to make a survivor feel like they aren't allowed to speak up about what's happening to them. And when, you know, a lot of times it's a great deal of of verbal abuse uh, degrading, and it makes the survivor feel so small that when they do physical violence to gain power and control, um, you're not going to call the police and you're not going to call campus life. You're going to take it because you believe that you deserve it at that point. And I think, you know, I went to therapy, a lot of therapy. Like at one point I was going to um, therapy like twice a week, um, even three times a week, trying to work through the way that violence makes you think in very distorted ways. Um, And I think, you know, heart in my head is emotional emotions that you feel. And in the moments that I was so outspoken, when I testified in front of the Illinois Congress or at the bill signing, I did not feel brave, but I knew in my gut that it was the right thing to do. And every time that my state representative's chief of staff was like, hey, do you wanna like speak at the bill signing? There's gonna be reporters and Governor Pritzker is gonna be there and it's gonna be a huge thing. It was like, in my heart, I was terrified. (laughs) And even when I was making the report, 
I was terrified. And even as I continue to advocate, I'm still terrified. And I still feel like maybe the things that I went through wasn't that bad, or maybe I'm just making it up. All the things that and verbiages that have been used against me by both my abusers, but my by society in general. And then I, but I knew that in my gut and in my mind that it was the right thing to do. And I think that's why I feel like a lot of survivors feel the same way because it's like stuff like trauma happens to you, but trauma sticks with you. It takes a really long time to, to be able to work through the very complex ways that affects your, your worldview. Thank you so much for that answer. And yeah, like it, it is really difficult because it's like, which, what, what is like, what is the right thing to do? And so it's sometimes it is difficult. Like everyone has their perceptions on exactly how do they know if they're doing the right thing. And so I, I do want to ask because I know you kind of talked about it in the beginning where like sometimes you see yourself as maybe not the most outspoken person. So is there ever a part of you where you're kind of like shocked that you're being able to speak in front of an audience or, or, or speak out about something? Like, is there a part of you where like, I can't believe I just did that. Because even though yeah. you're doing the right, even though you are fighting for something that is really important, it's still like, I know this is right. Or I know this is something we were advocating for, but oh my gosh, like, I can't believe, like I, I'm, I'm shy, but I'm able to speak and speak out in front of so many people like is it what is what's it like kind of like seeing yourself speak even though sometimes you deal with that i guess shyness for lack of a better word yeah i mean man how long was it go okay i'm gonna be 20 in like 10 days so basically five years ago i could not make eye contact with men like i literally i think it was you know part of a lot of the stuff that i went through part of it just you know, just being like, just like general shyness. Like I, I remember when I was in elementary school, it would be like, hey guys, everybody partner up. And I would be like, no, and I would like sit in the corner and I would read and then the teacher would yell at me because she would be like, girl, what are you doing? Like, you need to find a partner. You can't just, but I was just so scared. And I think growing up the way that I grew up in a household with abuse, I learned that the way to survive was to be silent. And I did not feel confident in myself until probably like three years ago. <laughs> but um, I mean, I still have not taken in the things that I've done. And a lot of times when people say, oh my gosh, congratulations. They're like, you're like so amazing. Like you're so accomplished. I still don't feel like I am. And it's hard to like take in my accomplishments and the things that I've done because for so long I was treated as if I was nothing. And it took a lot of therapy for me to realize that all of the internalized messages that made me feel so unconfident came from abuse. But, you know, speaking out, like, 
whether it was when I was in high school and I did theater, even though I was like shitting my pants. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to swear. But when I was like doing theater, I was so scared every time I was shaking. And then when I did speech, I spoke in front of like 10 people at a time in a classroom for three times every single uh, Saturday. And that was terrifying too. But then, you know, it slowly grew to like, I just spoke, um, the National Organization for Victims Assistance, um, they hosted a conference in New Orleans and it had 2000 people. And I spoke in front of an audience of like 80 to 100 um, about my experiences in a lot of detail about you know, what happened to me navigating the legal system, the economic instability I faced. And I talked about it and I was like, somehow comfortable, you know, speaking in front of so many people. And I've made a lot of progress, but I think it was through like speech and advocacy, I was able to, to get out of my shell more. Switching gears a little bit, I I know you advocate for social or for uh, victims of sexual assault, um, but you're also someone who fights for people in well specifically Northwestern. And I saw an article or a couple of articles where you talked about your experiences because I think you worked on campus, but you weren't getting I guess the the proper care uh, that you needed, such as uh, having flexible scheduling and uh, looking out for your mental health and then obvious, and then, um, uh, not having the appropriate pay, uh, to be able to pay for everything. And it's weird because I see this a lot at Ohio state. So, cause I'm a student at Ohio state, but I never really knew what that meant. And that may be because I commute from home. So I never really worried about it. But then when I saw your experiences and obviously everyone's experiences is different, but seeing yours and seeing the things that you were going through. I mean, it was sometimes difficult to read because it's like, I just never understood how bad the situation was. I know that fighting for justice for victims of sexual assault and then also fighting for college students in, uh, who, are, who are living on campus, I know they're two completely different things, but nevertheless, what, have, what do you feel like are some of the connections you found throughout, throughout those avenues? Like, like I said, I know they're different, but I feel like there's still some things that I guess have some sort of similarities as you continue with your advocacy. Yeah, I think I learned about those connections very intimately during my time at Northwestern. I was a resident assistant. Um, I was also a conference assistant, which is basically like an RA, but in the summer. And you know, the way that they treated the students was under the pretense that the students didn't have anything else to do other than being an RA or a CA. Um, it was like, like crazy hours as a conference assistant. They were going over the promised 20 hours per week. And um, it was the summer of 2022. Um, I fled domestic violence in 2021. I was an independent student. Um, I was terrified because at that time I was paying for um, paying tuition 
um, it wasn't a lot, but it was still like I had to pay. Um, and I was like, holy crap, like I'm going to have to pay for housing this summer. I have food stamps, so that's covered. But I also need to pay for tuition for the fall and for the next four years. So I calculated the amount of money that I would have to save in order for me to continue to be at Northwestern. I found an apartment um, that was $250 per month um, because I was a conference assistant at first. And then I realized this is like, I, so, oh my God, that summer was horrible because I was working um, Emerging Scholars, which is a great program. It's for um, first-generation low-income students um, to, uh, what is it? Uh, do research at Northwestern. I did books and breakfast tutoring for 12 hours and book Emerging Scholars was 40. And then on top of that, I was a conference assistant, which was 20 hours per week of work. And then um, what else? And then I worked at Mud Library, uh, which is a desk job paid 14 an hour. So I was working four jobs in total. That was probably like up to 60, 80 hours per week. And I was, I quit the conference assistant job because, you know, they promised I would only have to work 20 and it was a lot more than that. And I had to walk in the dark for most of it. Um, and then I had to be on call, which is like, you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to walk a mile across campus and let somebody into their room. And then I couldn't drive, so I didn't have they had like a golf cart. So I had to walk a mile every single night, essentially. Um, and then I was like, I don't think my body can physically handle this, first of all. But the main reason why I quit was because I had to cancel my other shifts at Mud Library. And I was like, it's costing me money to work as a conference assistant. And it gave me housing. But I realized it would I would have to work more hours for less pay as a CA. So then I moved into an apartment, 250 per month. It was a really bad apartment, like no air conditioning, Chicago heat waves come to hundred degrees every single day, no AC um, on the second or third floor, I think. And it was in a closet that was converted into a, into a bedroom, mold all the time. Um, I think it was like, it was basically like a frat house. I was living with a bunch of strangers. It was a big house. Um, but, you know, I, when you are one of the only homeless unaccompanied students at Northwestern, like I had to upload like hun hundreds basically of pages of documentation to get that status of abuse, neglect, um, financial independence, et cetera. Um, when you're one of the only homeless unaccompanied students at a top 10 university, at a university like Northwestern, where I think half of the students are paying $80,000 per year to go there on top of somehow paying for the nicest apartments on campus, you know, the policies aren't made for people like me. And 
you know, for the longest time, people like me weren't let into schools like Northwestern. So nothing was set up for people who have had difficult experiences and who are people of color or LGBTQ people or people with disabilities. And, you know, they, they wanted, they want diversity, but they're not making policies and programs that help diverse students. And um, in that way, like with uh, sexual violence and domestic violence, it's all interconnected because I think there's a, uh, a statistic that like domestic violence is the largest predicator for homelessness for women in all US major cities. Um, and that sexual violence, dom uh, domestic violence pushes survivors into a cycle of poverty, job loss, um, poor health because of PTSD, because of the wounds that you experience to homelessness. And I was very much caught in this cycle and it took everything in me to be able to get financial stability. And I am one of very few people who have the privilege to speak out because most survivors like me last year are working 80 hours per week just to survive. And I think, you know, Northwestern, and this is like a call to all colleges, need to be more cognizant of the experiences that students have because not everyone comes from a nuclear wealthy family and is just becoming an RA to put it on their on their resume. Some people are doing it because they don't have a place to stay otherwise. And yeah, just so many issues. And I tried to advocate, but I mean, there's been some changes, but it's hard to push the needle on things. I think when you ask anybody, they'll say college is hard, but what makes college difficult is not what's happening in the classroom. It can also be what's happening outside the classroom. And so it, it's weird because I feel like your story is similar to my dad's story. So my dad uh, moved from Bangladesh, which is in South Asia, and he studied in the United States. But the thing is, he didn't know a word of English and forget trying to get an A in, in the course or get the best grades possible. It was also, how do I pay for everything? How do I pay for food? How do I pay for housing? And so sometimes he would work overnight and then go to school the, the very next hour. So it was almost, there was almost, there were, excuse me. Yeah. There was almost times where he just, didn't sleep as much because of the amount of work he had to put in. And so it is so difficult for some, it's difficult for so many people, especially from different backgrounds, knowing that not everyone has the same story and real. And it's, it's like, we need to make sure that we give people the best possible care so that they are successful because yes, it's true. Grades are, one thing, and I know, I'm sure, I mean, we've seen all the memes when it comes to Asian cultures, like, yes, we need to have the best grades possible. But at the same time, how can you have the best performance in the classroom when you're not suited for success 
off the classroom. And so it is really important. And I do hope that not just in Northwestern, um, but even Ohio State or just colleges in the U.S. in general continue to support people um, from diverse backgrounds. Um, speaking of diversity, I want to talk a little bit about your identity because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I know you are Korean American, but you also identify as queer. And I think you may be the second or third guest I've had on the podcast who's um, been a member of the LGBTQ community, but I don't think I've ever really had the chance to really dive into this topic. So I do want to ask you, why is, why is queer such an important, why is identifying as queer such an important part of your identity? Yeah, I think it's a very, you're good. Um, it's a very intersectional thing. Um, I mean, I grew up in the Korean church um, and I, it was not only that like, I'm a Korean woman, it was also that I was a queer Korean woman. And in communities with the, you know, Korean immigrant community, especially in, you know, the Chicagoland area, it was important to have that, but in a lot of ways, it was stifled because of my identity as a queer person. Um, the way that, you know, trying to figure out my sexual orientation from a very young age, dressing, I'm I'm very like feminine right now, but when I was in sixth grade, I watched a BuzzFeed video about how lesbians dress and act. Um, and they were like, lesbians have pixie cuts and they wear plaid and they wear cargo, cargo pants and like to go outside and all these like stereotypes. Um, so it was like, oh my God, like I need to do that. So I cut my hair really short <laughs> and then for like Halloween and then I bought like four plaids um, from Old Navy when Old Navy was cheap. Um, and then I like, what else did I do? For um, eighth grade Halloween, I dressed up as a rainbow and I was just like very adamant about gay rights, but my parents never knew. Um, <laughs> and I think it's important to me because it's shaped the way that I've navigated the world for so long. And, you know, within the church, I faced a lot of homophobia because I, a lot of people saw my short hair and they thought I was a boy. Um, and even within school, it was like, ooh, like, why does that girl have a pixie cut? Like, she looks so weird. Um, and I think that like, my queer com identity has affected my life so much that to be outspoken about it, to be listed as like lads 20 under 20 means a lot to me. Um, just because after so long, it's been something that I was made to hide. Yeah. I, I find that one of the really cool things about just meeting people and just meeting people from diverse backgrounds is that regardless of who they are, regardless of how they identify as, they're human beings at the end of the day. And so it doesn't matter exactly, I mean, it doesn't really matter who you are. People should never be discriminated for just being simply human. And 
it's it's difficult and i know it i know like there's so much things going on with uh when it comes to the uh, there's so much news about the lgbtq community nowadays but i think for just people like you it's it's not about trying to paint like a unnecessary narrative or cause unnecessary attention it's more like i identify this way i feel this way and i want to be this way because this is just who i am and i know there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the lgbtq lg excuse me yeah lgbtq community and i know we talked and just mentioned how sometimes people there's so much news around the media and so sometimes people just don't understand what exactly is going on so i obviously like i said your experience is different from many people's but as someone who's a part of this community when you talk to people who i guess are hesitant to support the community in one way or another what what are some of the things that they need to know in terms of like who you are as a person like what are some i guess uh, let me put it in a more broader way which i know will be a difficult question but what what do you feel like is the most important thing for the lgbtq community like what's something that you're like we need to talk about this because this is really important to or we need to do this because this is really important to me i don't know if i worded that correctly but hope you know what i mean I understand. I there are so many. It's like it sucks because growing up within the and still now within the Korean community, it's like oh, it's like there's not enough discussion about the queer community, and you know, a lot of times there's a lot of deep rooted homophobia. But within the queer community, it's like, you know, we relate because we're all queer and part of the LGBTQ community. But there's almost this lack of understanding of my experiences as a Korean person, as someone who's experienced domestic violence and housing insecurity. And I think we need to grapple with the more nuanced and broader understanding of the ways that the queer community is disproportionately affected by racism. It's affected by um, the lack of social safety nets. Uh, queer people are more likely to be sex trafficked, queer people are more likely to experience discrimination in housing shelters, uh, queer people are more likely to experience domestic and sexual violence, and it's a very large pop, uh, pipeline for young queer people, particularly people of color, to be kicked out of their homes because they came out or they found out that they were queer and then going back into that pipeline of, of joblessness, unemployment, housing insecurity, poverty, and even incarceration. But in a lot of ways, like the mainstream representation of queer people, you know, it's just, it's a very surface level and it doesn't, you know, critically engage with the fact that Queer people experience violence, you know, sex trafficking, human trafficking. They experience the lack of social safety nets in the system. 
more than straight people. And I think like, you know, I'm not going to say like, we need to do this because I think there are already so many queer people already working on these issues. Um, but I think within corporate corporations trying to, you know, it's almost like you're tokenizing the queer community. Um, but I would hope that they would get a more critical understanding of the ways that this system is built against us um, other than for us. While you were talking, I realized the question I was trying to ask was, what are some things people should know about the LGBTQ community or queer people? So I was like, finally, I got it. But then I'm like, oh, it's too late. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, thank you so much for sharing that, because it is important to note that you guys are human beings. You are facing obstacles. And it's sad that people don't understand the fact that all you want is to just be treated equally, just like everyone else. You don't want to paint like you're not trying to say you're better than anyone. You're not trying to cause attention in any way. You just, you. this is how you're feeling and you just want to show people that this is who you are. And kind of speaking about identity, I also kind of mentioned you're also Korean American. So how would you describe the relationship with that aspect? Because I, so as someone who's, who's South Asian American, I never really got to understand what that meant. I like, I knew that that was a part of me, but I was more like, okay, it's just a part of me. But now maybe because as I get to college and figure out who I should associate myself with and seeing that the people who identify with me have been like, have been my friends the whole time, but then anyone who's like different from me, they kind of disappear. Cause like there's a usual, like as you grow older, you'll lose more and more friends because you just don't share anything in common. But what I've found over the past two years is just the people who align with me in terms of my identity, I've gotten more closer with, and now I'm kind of able to just appreciate more in terms of what are some of the South Asian cultures. Obviously this podcast is called, Oh, my curry goodness. So I know South Asians love curry, but which I know is like a, like a 0.001%, but nonetheless, like for you, how would you describe the relationship you have from a Korean American perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think for the longest time I never, was able to find a Korean community. I mean, I went to, I feel like there's such, within um, Asian cultures, when you're so isolated in America, we find community through things like the church. And like, that was the only time that I ever saw Korean grandmas and grandpas other than my family. And that was so important, but I was also queer. So I didn't have access to that in the ways that other people did. Um, and I got rejected a lot by my peers within the church uh, because of that. Um, and so for the longest time I struggled because I also didn't go to, I think I was the only Korean person in my school at one point. Um, I was like maybe one of two or three, um, but there wasn't a big community. And, you know, I got to college and then I didn't really find that Korean community um, because I found that like a lot of people in college are very wealthy and don't, you know, have the same experiences that I have because I think it takes a lot of privilege to be able to go to Northwestern in the first place. 
to be able to afford it. Um, but the community that I have found, like, honestly, probably like eight months ago, like it hasn't been that long, is the uh, Asian American community in Chicago. Because there's so many like neighborhoods in Chicago. There's uh, Argyle, the Vietnamese neighborhood, Chinatown, obviously Chinese. Um, there's the South Asian uh, neighborhood, I think in the North side. I did something called like the Chicago is Asian shoot. Um, and it was a big photo shoot uh, with all these different Asian American uh, leaders. Like there's one woman who started the first Cambodian restaurant in Chicago and her and her mother both survived the Khmer Rouge um, regime. And then there was another woman who was, you know, did a running group and like is a lawyer. And she's a Vietnamese woman who, you know, fights for representation. Um, and they're also amazing. It was, it was a great, it was a great thing. Um, but I think like, you know, a lot of Asian Americans have a history of poverty, of violence, of, I mean, it is a traumatic thing to immigrate to a new country, especially at a young age, to not know the language, to be in a completely different environment. And so I think that to find people who have been through and overcome these struggles has been so invaluable because it makes me feel like like I found like the intersection of all of these issues that I'm trying to work against and there's a whole community who is working together to try to combat it and if I mean community is one of the most important things especially in a really isolating and emotionally exhausting work. I, yeah, it's, it's so true. Community is really important. And sometimes when I talk about community, I don't know why I bring this up on the podcast, but I just, it just, for some reason it comes to mind, but sometimes I think of Wizard of Oz in, in a sense, which I know it's only four people technically, but like never, like just realizing that, you know, Dorothy was by herself throughout this whole time or when she first started and then she picked up two, three, no, three friends along the way, maybe more. I, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but just seeing that she has more people to help her and realize that they also have their issues. It makes the journey, I don't want to say slightly less painful, but it's like it makes it or maybe I guess for lack of a better term, it's like it makes situation better maybe manageable even though it's difficult it's like it's better than doing it alone and that's and having someone or having a group of people that are kind of going through the same things that you may be going through maybe slightly different even though it's difficult it's like well i'm glad we're doing this together because we can good things can come out of this and even if we do lose or even if we are struggling we're struggling together right if, if one person is affected all of us is affected and we just have to continue to keep going before I let you go, I do want to just kind of reflect. I want you to kind of like reflect on your journey in some sense, because, you know, we talk about all the negative stuff that you had gone through, sexual assault, um, the, homopho uh, the homophobia, um, and then other experiences that you've gone through. 
two questions. First of all, firstly, what are you most grateful for? And secondly, what would you tell your younger self? And obviously, I'll give you a minute to kind of like think about this because I know they can be, they can be uh, difficult questions. I, I think it might seem like I am doing this alone because, you know, I don't have contact with my parents anymore. I have experienced a lot of violence within relationships. Um, I'm independent financially. Um, I pay for everything on my own. I somehow was able to, you know, do well in school and, and keep pers pursuing what I'm passionate in despite everything that's ever happened. But I think the way that I've been able to survive is because I was vulnerable enough to rely on other people. Like I don't have contact with my parents anymore, but I got an apartment for a year and I have a lease because my high school teacher Mrs. Thompson, that I met in sophomore year of high school, um, co-signed her and her husband so I could have stable housing for a year. And she's only known me for four years, but she still did it. And uh, what else? Like my internship ends August 26th and then my apartment doesn't open up until September 1st. For, so for four days, I will be staying at Mrs. Thompson's house um, I was able to get a lot of advising and a lot of, you know, almost like like a parental voice in what was going on in my life through my academic advisor at Northwestern, through my professors, through, you know, these adults that came into their roles, you know, not to become parental figures in a random girl's life, but stepped up to the plate when no one else was doing that for me. And, you know, it's almost like my therapist once described it as like a quilt. And like, some people have just one person that they rely on, but when people don't have that, you create it through these small interactions to remind you that everything is okay and that you're doing great. Um, and what, so that's what I'm grateful for. Um, and I guess what I would tell my younger self is that like you have been through what a child is never supposed to go through um, and you didn't deserve any of that. And that it's okay to reach out to people and tell them what's going on. And also that despite everything that has happened, you're gonna achieve way more than you ever thought you were going to. If there's one thing I, if there's one thing that I hope that people listening to this take away is that the importance of finding someone or a community or one person to believe in you. And so um, like kind of like you mentioned, um, Ms. Thompson, who helped you throughout when you needed help the most. And 
it's so important to be able to find a community or someone that can just help you. And, you know, even though the journey is difficult, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's always great to have at least one person by your side and realizing that you're going to be okay um, in the future. But Kaylin, I just want to say thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Uh, thank you for allowing yourself to be vulnerable and authentic. I know it's never easy. And especially when it comes to person's, people's experiences, it can really be difficult. But thank you so much for opening up in an honest way. And I wish you nothing but the best for the future. And I hope you continue to inspire many people, um, regardless of what a role of advocacy you do. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you guys like what you saw, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at The OMCG Podcast for more information on guests, preview clips, and more. Please continue to support this podcast in the future, and I can't wait to see you guys in the next episode.